Yep, there we go. Okay, that's true. Turning it on. Yeah, that is different. Um, but, uh, but we are uh, this morning. And um, it might even get to a place where you ask the question, can you read the Bible in the way that Josh is about to read the Bible? And, um, uh, well, you'll just have to think about that as we read it together and maybe have a think about it during the week. Um, I haven't told Graham about this, but I've run the names Donald Trump and Kanye West through the Bible code, particularly for Psalm 145, to see, you know, which one of them is the good guy, which one's the bad guy. Are they both in it together? No. That's just a joke. I just like to make Graham sweat. We, we've had uh, <laughs> we've had a bit of feedback. We, <laughs> we've had a bit of feedback already uh, about how things have been going, and and apparently people like the banter. So I'll just have to take pot shots at Graham every time I preach. It's going to be really difficult for for me as uh, a good-natured Christian, but I'll try just to <laughs> just to please the people. Um, yeah. One of the things uh, about the Psalms that will drive some of you crazy and will make some of you uh, particularly kind of inclined towards them is that they're poetry, right? I mean, they're songs, but they have this strong poetic uh, dimension to the type of literature that they are. And um, the thing about poetry is that uh, when we talk about reading texts, uh, literary... Uh, critics, um, art critics, Bible scholars sometimes talk about two dimensions of a text. You've got the content, which is kind of the words in it, and then you've got what they call the form, which is the way those words are arranged, even down to the point of you know paragraph, structure, um, punctuation, and that kind of stuff. But with poetry in particular, form is really important. Um, have you seen those poems that are like shaped? like something, um, or even um, stanzas will have particular rhythms in poetry, so there'll be a certain amount of syllables in one line and then a different amount of syllables in the next, and uh, they all do something to convey meaning, right? Are you, are you following that so far? Now, before I go too far down that wormhole and you think that just sounds boring, at least we're all agreed upon the fact that there's, there is form in literature, there's form particularly in poetry, and it, it does something to convey <coughs> meaning. Now, um, one of the things about uh, the way we read the Bible in English is the form is often lost on us because it was written in, in Hebrew in a different language. And every now and then in the Psalms, you'll see that they've kind of tried to arrange things in, in stanzas. And there'll be parts of the other books where there's, you know, you can see oh, something that they're, they're editing this text a little bit different in here. But it's really difficult to translate poetry from one language to another. And so sometimes we just don't even see that. And as much as anything for a kind of um, little illustration of, of the fact that maybe we need to be a little more aware of that dimension of what's going on, particularly when we're reading the Psalms. We're going to have a little, little bit of a look at form today and, and, and maybe as a bit of a corrective, rather than focusing too much on the content of this Psalm, we will look at it. I want to ask the question together, what can we learn from the form of Psalm 145? Now, form 
matters. Um, I've got a few examples of why form matters. Um, so if anyone's listening on the podcast or there's, there's people uh, in our midst who, who can't see that, we've got a pole with street signs. Um, at, at the top of the pole is one of those directions to signs and it says cemetery this way. And then underneath there are traffic warning signs that say elderly people crossing, basically. But it just so happens that the symbol for the elderly people is in the same direction as the cemetery. Now, <laughs> for, for matter, obviously those, uh, there's, there's been a little bit of uh, a lack of thought about the way that those signs are set up. But you can see the point that I'm making, form matters. Here's another one. We've got a shopping centre sign with a few different uh, business signs there. The top one says driving essentials and the one underneath says beer. Um, so, yeah, maybe a little bit of problem with the, the meaning that could be getting conveyed there. Speed bumps ahead when children are present. And... Um, I like this one. It's maybe a little bit borderline for a church, but uh, some good Christian citizen has gone out and spent some money just to remind people about Jesus. as a big billboard, but it's over the top, and you might struggle to read that, all of you, of a McDonald's ad, which has uh, a cheeseburger or something, and it says, uh, Beefy, Cheesy, Glory. <laughs> So, Jesus, beefy, cheesy glory. I actually went looking, because I think uh, they're probably a more appropriate example in lots of ways, of instances where it's a single sign, um, but there had just been some poor choices when it came to fonts. Um, and and I, there was lots of instances of that, but really hardly any that were appropriate for church. I like to uh, push the envelope a little bit at times, um, but there was just lots of poor font choices around words like flick uh, on signs and uh, therapist. Uh, you, can, you can go really wrong. I did find one that, that, that we can probably just abide by, and that is Fart Taco, <laughs> uh, a Mexican restaurant. I think it's supposed to be Fast Taco, but it kind of looks like <laughs> Fart Taco. So... You know, uh, yeah, maybe, 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 yeah, maybe it's just honest advertising. Is that what you're saying, Jenny? Um, people sometimes talk about Christians as as people of the book, right? People of a book. So, uh, text and meaning is important to us. Um, if text and meaning is important to us, then not only is content, so the words that we read, but the form. Uh, because it can uh, influence so much what a particular text is saying. And uh, just to kind of give you a a textbook sort of different definition of this, uh, this is from um, some preparation uh, material for uh, the British exam system. Content is what a text says. Form is the way in which what it says is arranged. Everything from a chapter to a paragraph to a punctuation mark is a way (coughs) of arranging the content of a text and thus a formal quality. Um, and I'm sure you guys, now that we're kind of in that zone, in that place, you can kind of, you know what I'm talking about. So let's have a bit of a look 
at the particular section from Psalm 145 that is in our readings for today, because we don't have the whole thing. So this is Psalm 145, um, verses 10 to 18. It is, as far as I'm aware, the only um, psalm in the in the Bible that is actually called Psalm of Praise. There's a few that sort of fit into that genre and it's attributed to David. So this is how verse 10 starts. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and they speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. That's good, isn't it? You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. Uh, Hallelujah, uh, we might say. God, um, as they often do, these psalms just train us and focus us on you and your glory. We're ever needful of revelation of these things, Lord, of who you are. Not only uh, we who, who call ourselves your people, but a world is needful of the revelation of your goodness. Speak to us this morning, we pray. <clears throat> so you can see that, you know, we sang some good songs when we think about this psalm. It is a psalm of praise. Um, it's a psalm where David, um, it, it's much longer than the, the excerpt that we've read. He spends a lot of time praising God, saying what's great about God, talking about the ways that God um, is wonderful, the way that God blesses his people, the way that God looks after and sustains <clears throat> creation. Um I'm going to flash to a slide now that is going to be difficult to read, but again, we're talking about form, so don't get too caught up on trying to read the the bits of the content. So this is the whole psalm, Psalm 145. And I've done a little bit of colour coding just to kind of get us thinking about form. You'll see there's a couple verses at the start and one at the end that are coloured green. And they kind of function as a bit of an intro and an outro, if you want to use that language, in reading this psalm. There's a section, uh, kind of a first stanza almost, in red, one in black, and then finally one in blue. And people have looked at this psalm and they've said these different parts seem to be kind of focusing on different things. And that's why I've used some uh, emboldenment and underlining there. So people note that the psalmist, David, sort of starts in himself a little bit in his focus. While he says, God, you're great, he does what most of us probably do. We're very aware of where we're at, of what's going on in our lives. 
So he sort of does this thing that we've seen a couple of times in this series where he says, I'm going to do this, actually. I'm going to praise God and it's going to involve making this decision. I'm going to meditate, he says in verse 5 there, and I'm going to proclaim God's great deeds. In that second section that's in black, uh, people have noticed that it seems to switch a bit. You can see uh, that he talks about God's compassion there and then goes on to make a few references to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Glory, uh, your kingdom is glorious, I'll tell of it. Uh, I'm going to tell people about the splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And then in the blue section, uh, he talks about provision, actually, for all of creation. The Lord upholds those who fall. The eyes of all look to God and he gives them their food at the proper time. He opens his hand, he satisfies the desires of every living thing. And then he kind of focuses it back in, uh, particularly on God's people. The Lord is near to all who call on him. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He watches over all who love him. And there's a bit um, that we could say about the content there. They actually say good communication. You don't notice the, the, the kind of content and form as different things. They should be seamless. That's why when we looked at those signs and there were some issues with form, it was kind of funny. But most signs you won't be remarkable because they do their job and they communicate what they're supposed to communicate. So it can be a little bit tricky to kind of analyse these things separately, content and form. But uh, there's a few things going on here that are, are worth mentioning. It's a really strong feature of Hebrew uh, literature that God's righteousness is connected to his um, function as a creator and sustainer of the world. And we see that going on. There's a bit um, of a kind of form or guide for the way that we might pray or praise in here as well. So David starts with the personal. He kind of looks out. It's interesting, you know, while there is this... uh, feature at the end about God's people and those who call on him. There's also plenty in the psalm that says actually God looks after everybody. God looks after all of creation. And so David comes out of the personal and is aware of those beyond himself and even the whole of creation. He does this thing um, where he considers God in the most universal terms. Uh, The it's not likely that he had a strong kind of idea about heaven like we have, but he, he thinks of God in the, in the most complete and universal terms that are possible. And then he also talks about the kingdom of God. And you might recognise um, these features from, say, the Lord's Prayer uh, as a bit of a template for, pr- for, for prayer. I love the fact that the Lord's Prayer starts actually at the corporate level. So the disciples, they teach us how to pray. They've already got that that's really important to Christi- Christianity, to what Jesus is doing. We're not out on our lonesome. Teach us to, play, to pray. And Jesus says, um, you know, uh, give us this day our daily bread. There's that kind of personal and corporate concern. Uh, forgive us our trespasses thinking about others as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So he's doing that in the Lord's Prayer. And I think there's maybe something to that. I, I think the best prayers that I've heard, whether it's been intentional or not, 
incorporate all those elements, actually. Um, they're, they're mindful of who we are, but also our identity as a people. Um, we had a housemate who uh, taught me to pray grace before a meal. Um, and maybe some of you have heard me uh, say grace, and it's because of his influence. But he used to do this thing, which I think is great, where he actually sort of thinks about all the processes that bought that food to the table. So we're not sort of grateful for uh, this food that's just magically appeared. We're mindful of the fact that there's been farmers, there's been land, there's been animals, there's been people in the transport industry, there's been shopkeepers, and we're thanking God for his provision through those people. Um, And I think good worship is like that too, where we we get a picture of how God's really working in the world, and it's bigger than just, you know, us and God, almost always. Now, that's just, uh, again, a little bit to get us thinking about the form of Psalm 145. Another really significant feature of Psalm 145 when it comes to form, and this is one of those things we, we would just miss, is that it's an acrostic poem. Now, does everyone know what an acrostic poem is? You might know that I've got a bit of a passion for poetry and um, I was doing a bit of multitasking in the staff meeting uh, this week and so I actually wrote one. I was listening to Graham on a number of levels. Graham reeks of aftershave halfway through all meetings. So the first letter of every line spells something out. That's an acrostic poem. And just to give you... Thank you. I know. I know. It's going to be quoted at funerals um, and weddings. Um, Just to give you some insight into what's going on with Psalm 145 there, I'm not going to... It would be pointless to show you the whole thing because uh, the Hebrew is probably lost on all of us, but you can see the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet there in the first three lines of Psalm 145. The letter Aleph, Bet and Gimel uh, starts, so they're writing and reading right to left uh, each line. Kind of interesting. Yeah, did anyone, has anyone read Psalm 145 this morning or this week? And have you picked up on, on the acrostic nature of it? Um, you, have to, you definitely have to go to the footnotes, I'd say, if your Bible has them. There's been discussions about, you know, why. If form's important, what's important about the acrostic nature of this poem? And one suggestion is that it's a memory aid, which kind of makes sense, right? Like, never eat soggy wheat bix um, uh, Good boys deserve fruit always, is that? Or every good boy deserves fruit? Um, I was uh, giving a lecture in ethics, and for some reason I was talking about the light spectrum, which maybe says something about my ability to stay on task. And uh, I was like, what are the colours? <laughs> what, what are all the colours in the, in the spectrum? And one of the Indian students said, uh, it's easy, you just have to remember Roy G. Biv, and you remember red, orange, uh, green. And I was like, that's not a thing, Roy G. Biv. Uh, that's not, that's not, how is that helpful? You're making up a word. But apparently, I looked it up, and Roy G. Biv is... Yeah, there's a They Might Be Giants song about it that's super catchy and you're all going to 
have it stuck in your head if you go and look it up. But yeah, Roy G. Biv. Um, so we can see how uh, it could kind of maybe help uh, the people who are, and, and Jews are often memorising large parts of scripture, it would, it would help them to remember the psalm so that they could recite it. Uh, and that could be kind of useful, yeah. I think maybe a little bit underdone in the way that we handle scripture because um, I was just trying to think of a, a sort of pop culture examples of where this, um, it, it's, a, it's an association dynamic really, isn't it? You remember one thing because you remember the other. We all remember Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do, uh, even if we've only watched The Sound of Music once because it's got a catchy song, right? Um, but uh, there's more to it. it uh, people have said, yep, could be uh, to help with memorization that it's in an acrostic. Could also be symbolic of the completeness of who God is, um, of our ability to speak of the goodness of God. Similar kind of idea to, you know, we, we, uh, we find reference to God as the Alpha and Omega, right? The beginning and the end kind of saying anything that could be said that is good, anything that could be attributed, you know, any word that you can think of uh, can be used to glorify God. Um, and I like, I like that as well. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. So, what does that mean for, for us? How is that helpful to us? I've been making this case this morning that the form is, is useful here. Well, form does matter. It matters in the way that we might make sense of Scripture, but it also matters, I'm going to suggest this morning, in the message that we give to the world, right? What we're saying. If we're people of the book and we're formed and shaped by Scripture... And, and, and we understand God to a large degree through Scripture, the way that we convey God has a formal element too. And there are important things to say with words. There are important meanings to convey in this life. Form matters. Um, I love you with the creepy... Uh, green monster font is it not possible uh, that life uh, is, is, is like this uh, as much as texts um, have this formal element where meaning can be conveyed or misconstrued uh, the meanings that we give over can be conveyed correctly or misconstrued it might be a little odd um, to to send this to your to your Valentine, I love you, with the creepy monster font. Is it possible that the life that you're living, if you identify as a Christian, could be misconstruing something? Is there a risk? I want to suggest that formally there is there is a risk. We can be saying, "I am a Christian." We can be speaking it with our mouths, but there could be other things. The context with which we say that, the life that we live, that somehow changes the meaning slightly. Perhaps it's saying more about the I am part than the a Christian part. 
Perhaps it's even blocking it out to some degree. It's worth thinking about, actually. Isn't it? Famous passage of Scripture that uh, we'll often reach for when we want to know, you know, whether we're in, in or out, whether we're doing the right thing or not, whether we qualify as a Christian, whether we would be qualified to say something like, I am a Christian, is Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some reassurance in that, isn't there, if we've we've declared and believed. But um, something that people have often picked up on uh, about Westerners in particular, so that's most of us in this room, not all of us, Um, most people will read that from other cultures and they'll say, yep, I get what that's on about. What we might be inclined to do as Westerners, whether we realise it or not, is substitute heart for mind there. And why is that? Uh, it's, and many philosophers, cultural critics, theologians have, have commented on this. Western people in particular are inclined to see the seat of our humanity, the kind of control room for who we are as human beings, um, as our mind rather than our heart. I don't know if that's ever... We've talked about that a bit, but I don't know if you've really kind of ever cottoned onto that. I um, talk about this quite a bit because uh, teaching theology, it's a big thing for, for theology students to get their head around. That actually most other cultures don't think that we are, um, to use the language of one theologian in particular, brains on sticks. Western people can sometimes think we're sort of brains on sticks. That's the most important thing about who we are. Most other cultures see the heart or something like that as central. So you'll you'll read um, that definitely in the Hebrew scriptures, in, in the Greek scriptures as well, talking about the heart as kind of the home of spirituality, the home of the will in a person, a place where decisions are being made. Um, you might remember from uh, Sos in middle school when you studied ancient Egypt that when they buried people for the afterlife, and I think I've told you this uh, as well, we've talked about this, they had these canopic jars, so big jars, and they would put the important organs in those jars. Do you remember that? So there'd be four of them. I can see the people who've been recently in middle school remember. So it was like the heart in one, the lungs in one, the liver in another one, and the stomach, I think, in one. And then they would just scrape the brain out of the skull with a hooked stick, because that's useless, that's, that's doing nothing. Just as an evidence of the fact that people kind of, you know, they haven't necessarily, in the way that we've thought about the, the central part of our humanity, seen the brain uh, or the mind. They've seen the heart. And I think, actually, below the surface, we get that, uh, how often have you had a conversation with somebody where they say, I just, I really think that God's calling me to get involved with this or that. And you're thinking, that is not a brain decision. That's totally a heart decision. You're just reaching for mind language, thinking language, because it somehow makes it a little more um, respectable somehow. 
Or maybe you've even, it's not such a big deal in Pentecostal churches, but you've been to a church where there's a suspicion of like emotion, right? As soon as uh, someone's preaching passionately or the music is too emotive, it's like, ooh, not quite sure how I feel about that. It could be quite a different thing to read this passage both ways then, couldn't it? To say, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your mind that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The heart is often pointed to as that which shapes our actions. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who identifies intellectually with a particular category. I'm a feminist, for instance, but then they're a really lousy husband. Or um, I'm not a consumer, but they live the same as everybody else. It's actually quite a common feature of human beings to go around and about their lives thinking that they're one thing, that they're not. Um, and this, this is like where the biblical worldview sort of starts to push against us oftentimes as Western people because the proof of who we are is not in what we say we do, right? It's not in what we think we are. What's it in? It's in what we do, right? The proof of who we are is not in what we think we are or what we say we are. It's in what we do. We've been uh, reading this book about the, the power of spiritual habit somehow, or the spiritual power of habit. And uh, the commentator makes this statement. I'll include this in the life group notes. Your deepest desire is the one that is manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through practices that we're immersed in. So you'll be aware, if you've been in some sort of long-term relationship, like a marriage that has got some sort of romantic dimension, that the romance can can kind of go up and down a little bit, right? Maybe it goes more often down and just kind of jumps every now and then. That early period of a relationship is often really marked by these strong feelings, by not being able to think of anybody but your beloved. Um, But you work out that soon enough, you actually have to start to live as though you love that person if the relationship is going to have any chance, if the proof of those feelings is going to be borne out. And, and actually, the, the language of habits might be a bit new to us, but we develop habits, right, to serve the people that we love, to show them that we're committed, that this is a real thing for us. One of the things that um, we observe about habits, about patterns of life, is that um, as much as we can shape them for a purpose, so I get up in the morning and put the kettle on because I love my wife 
for example. This thing happens where they begin to shape us as well. And I can um, develop habits through the course of my day that help me to love my wife, actually. Help me to remember how much she means to me. Help me to remember how valuable that relationship (coughs) is. And this is where I think the form of Psalm 145 can can help us, actually. Because one of the things that Jewish culture did well was develop habits, right? And we might get the band up uh, soon, if that's all right. So hang scripture here on your doorways. Have scripture there. Um, When you rise in the morning, pray. When you go to bed, pray. Now, of themselves, you know, we can do anything and it can be empty. But if we invite the Holy Spirit into the everything that we do, we're more likely to be formed and attuned to who God is. To live a life of praise, I think, we can take a lesson from Psalm 145 and say... Actually, how can I attach praise for God to something that I see every day, like the alphabet? How can I um, incorporate extolling God's virtues into making breakfast? We keep some of those, you know, like grace. We say grace before a meal for those sorts of reasons, to remember uh, where the food came from, how good God is in blessing us. But actually, I think we've lost that tendency in lots of ways because we tend not to think that our actions are significant. We're often more focused on what's happening in our minds. So, Psalm 145. Let's read the words. But let's remember that as much as the form of a text is important to conveying its meaning, the form of our lives is important to the message that we're sending out as well. Speaking about being honest to God. The Ben, you can begin to play actually if you like. I just want to provide a moment where we can invite God in to this situation and say... You know, God, if my life is a sign, is it one that actually points to you? Is it, it, it might have the text, oh, I, I'm a Christian, on it. But what is the context of that saying about how true that is? Is it something that people actually are reading when they encounter me? The packaging of my life, what it says on the outside when people rip it open. Will it have told the truth about who I am and what my life is all about? Why don't we stand? My challenge to you this week would be to think. I would really hope if you identify as a Christian, you do things, you have practices in your home like saying grace 
before a meal. But what are some other ways that you can invite God into the form of your life? That you can make the details of your life uh, a psalm, actually, to God. Getting in the car, turning the ignition. Is that a praise point? (laughs) Uh, Waking in the morning and seeing uh, people that you care about or having something meaningful to do with your day. Can you structure that sort of focus into your life to some degree? God, we know that any of these efforts um, would be in vain. We know that we can't earn your love. But Lord, we do want to be a people who walk the talk. And God, I thank you for uh, the witness of of the Psalms as we've encountered them over the last month or so, the way that they can, can shape our spirituality. I pray, Lord, in this moment that we could be honest with you, shine a light into our souls, into our habits, into what it is that we do with the substance of our time and our lives. Help us to tune each part of it to you, Lord, by your Spirit. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.au. Thank you.